I'm Mike Gaston, and you are listening or watching The Currency, a podcast about ideas, human creativity, abundance, and wealth creation. This is episode number 59, I believe, and uh, I've titled this one, what did I title this one? I titled it uh, Labor Pains, Big Gains. I just thought I'd a little play on words there. It's a Labor Day weekend, and I thought we'd spend some time talking about labor, Labor Day, the Labor Day weekend, the labor movement, and more importantly, the deeper aspects of work, human beings and work, and what does it mean for us? So I'm glad that you joined me today. If you're listening after the fact, we do a live stream on YouTube. You can go to Mike Gaston Live and catch the stream there. Uh, You can participate, jump in the comments and so on. If not, you can always listen to the podcast on popular platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, and so on. I'm glad to have you guys along. Uh, beautiful day today. It is Sunday, and uh, what is it, the 6th of August, tomorrow being Labor Day in America, North America. And just for the international audience, so it's, I think it's a little confusing. Some people are like, well, why do you guys celebrate Labor Day in September? So in the typical, uh, in the rest of the world, outside of North America, most countries celebrate the kind of similar equivalent Labor Day on May 1st, May Day. And that, that kind of mayday came out of an event that happened in the US, which is kind of funny. I, don't, I didn't know this until I did some research. Uh, but we celebrate labor and the whole idea behind Labor Day is we're recognizing, yeah, George is saying we have Labor Day on May 1st. George is in Austria. So most of the world celebrates Labor Day on May 1st. In America and also Canada, so the US and Canada, North America, we celebrate the first Monday of every September. And I don't know why they pick that day. Typically for Americans, it kind of signals the end of the summer, the beginning of the school year, because Americans shut down for the summer. Typically, I know a lot of countries don't do that. They do Christmas holidays, but they go through the summer. But um, the funny thing is, uh, Labor Day, the, the, the May 1st Labor Day, the International Labor Day, came out of an event out of Chicago. So in Chicago in the late 1800s, there was this thing called the Haymarket Affair, And essentially, there were these riots, a bunch of anarchists and trade unionists and the Knights of Labor and these different groups that were advocating for better uh, working conditions for people. And, and you know, I'm a free market guy. I'm I'm kind of conservative. I'm not a big unionist, but I have to say back in the day, people were working like 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. They had no rest. They were getting paid peanuts. They were working six, seven days a week and they're just working around the clock. And so these Movement. Some of them were violent. Some of them were really socialist. But some of them were just more like, "Hey, we're not trying to upset the world here. We're not anti-money. We're not anti-free markets. We just feel that the workers should be treated a little bit better." And so there was this um, a lot of protests and so on. But there was this Haymarket affair where a bunch of anarchists and labor movement people. There's a kind of a confluence of these kind of disruptors, if you will. Not all of them bad actors, by the way. I'm not. I'm not. This isn't about painting anybody. Uh, unjustly. It's just they were there and then the police were sent in to break this up. And in the midst of all this, I, th- I the word is that an anarchist threw a stick of dynamite at the cops and it blew up and killed some of the police officers. Then, of course, gunfire erupted. And in the end, I want to say that there were like, I think there were eight police officers killed and three or four maybe um, people in the crowd were killed. It wasn't a huge massacre, but it was, it was a pretty big deal. It was referred to as the Haymarket Affair. Uh, the, the, you know, the, they went out and they rounded up a bunch of these anarchists. Um, 
And some of them were pardoned, I think, by the state governor in uh, the state of Illinois' governor. Uh, but in the end, there were a handful of these anarchists that were hung. They were killed, executed for their crimes. Now, this is back in the 1800s. I want to say mid-late 1800s. I don't remember the date exactly. So the International so uh, Socialist um, Convention of Socialists or International, I forget what they called themselves, but the International Socialists got together for their annual thing. It may have been their second one. I don't remember. And they decided that they were going to memorialize this Haymarket affair um, on May Day, on May 1st. And this has now become kind of like a workers' holiday. And when I say workers' holiday, I mean like, like you know, organized collectivist workers. And we're talking socialism slash communism. Now, it doesn't mean that if you enjoy Labor Day, you throw a couple of... Um, things on the grill, have a barbecue, hang out with friends and family that you're participating in some socialist. It's not, it's not that. I mean, it's, I think Labor Day has just come in general terms to symbolize the amazing contributions of the workers of the world and in each country, what they've contributed. And you look at, you know, I posted this video earlier today on my other channel, but you look at the society around us, where would we be without workers? Where would we be without labor? Now, you could argue, where do we need, you know, do we really need labor unions anymore? Do we need teachers unions and all that? And I think that's a great conversation to have. But if you look back in the 1800s and the early 1900s, both in Europe and the U.S., you can make a good argument for labor unions. There was uh, people needed to band together to fight against someone that was taking advantage of them. I, I get that. Um, but if you look around, you know, the buildings, the bridges, the roads, uh, the public works, the infrastructure, all the things that we have, and then all the, the consumer goods that we enjoy and so on, you know, labor has some hand in that. And these days, the labor might not be in your own country. The labor might be coming from another country. But at the end of the day, if somebody isn't laboring, we are not moving forward as a society. We're not enjoying the better things of life without someone putting some effort in. And so... Uh, but that's the that's the origins of the uh, May 1st Labor Day. Now, in the U.S., I don't know if it's tied to the Haymarket Affair or not. It's kind of ironic. You know, we've got this Haymarket Affair in Chicago, which which launches kind of an international recognition of the worker. Then in the U.S., we end up with some different holiday. How is that? Why? Why does the why does the U.S. do things differently? Why does the whole world play soccer and most of the world refer to it as football, and yet Americans have their own version of football, which is kind of like rugby, but a little different. You know, we've got baseball. We kind of, I think we invented baseball, and I think we invented basketball. So those are sports that we created on our own. It's not like we copied somebody. But when I look at football, football is really like rugby. It's like this kind of, yeah, I don't know, it's just strange. So the rest of the world enjoys things like soccer and rugby. I guess, I, you know, I guess you could say American baseball is similar to cricket, similar. There's a bat, there's a ball. Uh, it's a little different, I guess. But it's just interesting to me how America's always got to have this kind of different approach. And if you ask most Americans, they're like, you know, uh, th there is no other way. It's not that we do things differently. It's like we do things the best way and everybody else, who cares? Which <laughs> I'm kind of laughing because I don't subscribe to I'm very patriotic. I think every country should be proud of their nation should be proud of your culture, your history, and so on. Hey, you should take responsibility for the areas that your country has fallen short, the things that you do that are maybe backwards or silly or funny. But at the end of the day, you should be proud of your country. I'm proud of America. I'm not mocking it. But on the other hand, I, I would be dishonest if I was pretending like I didn't recognize how goofy we are. Now, I have lived in other countries. I've traveled relatively, I mean, not extensively, but I've traveled, I, I guess I've traveled extensively, Can, you know, compared to other people, I've traveled quite a bit. So, 
I have to laugh a little bit when I look at that. But um, so I'm not sure how we ended up with the first day of of September. And it, and it wasn't initially a federal holiday. Initially, I think Oregon or one of these states decided they were going to start celebrating Labor Day. And then it just got adopted across the country, but uh, over time. So here we are. It's the Labor Day weekend. We're celebrating the contribution of workers of labor, past and present, to making America great again. And, uh, <laughs> and um, people typically here don't even pay attention to that. They just think it's a chance to take a break from work. We get a long weekend here. We usually have Mondays off. People throw on a barbecue, maybe get together with family and friends. I don't know under COVID-19 what that looks like. Uh, we just did a little picnic outdoors today. Um, a couple of my kids, my son and daughter-in-law, one of them uh, traveling uh, to celebrate their wedding anniversary, but my other son and his girlfriend and my daughter came over. My wife put together a really nice spread, a couple glasses of wine, some great food outdoors, wonderful dessert, cup of coffee, and here I am behind the mic. So happy Labor Day. Now, what's ironic to me about Labor Day is that we celebrate this kind of collectivist workers holiday in America, at least, by offering discounts. <laughs> we offer shopping discounts to consumers so that they go shop. So Labor Day historically has been a big shopping holiday. And I don't know if that's going to continue some of the social unrest, some of the criticisms. I, I, I can see that maybe dying down a little bit, or at least going quiet for a while. Um, George says, because I made the comment about Make America Great Again, he goes, it's MAGA time on the Gaston channel. Good vibes. Yeah, I just it's just kind of funny to me because really, if you think about it, this country is amazing by the because of the contribution of the hard work of the people that make up this country. It's it's not, I mean, the intellectuals are great and the pundits are fine and you know all that jazz, but at the end of the day, it's the hard work of the of the people of this country that make it great. It's the hardworking neighbors that I'm surrounded by. It's the hardworking family members, hardworking individuals, people that are getting up every day in earnest, doing their work, you know, minding their business, paying their taxes, taking care of their family. Like that's what makes this country great. And that can happen in the urban, the suburban, the rural areas, like just hardworking Americans. That's what makes the country work. It's what makes it happen. It's what makes it great. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, a leftist or, or, or a right winger, like at the end of the day, like if you're a hardworking person, you're contributing. I think that's fantastic. So to me, it's just kind of funny because you wouldn't have the great country. You wouldn't have the monuments. You wouldn't have these amazing uh, infrastructure, the architecture, the roadways. I mean, uh, people don't understand the scope of how large America is until you've traveled here. People just don't understand how big it is. And you look at the roadway system that is maintained in, in pretty good shape. I mean, you do get some rough areas, but you, you can go for hours, days through the desert in America on really good roads. It's quite phenomenal. That doesn't happen without the hard work and labor of great Americans making, making the country great again. Unity ECS, uh, welcome to the stream. Former, formerly uh, Saba. Great to see you. Hope things are going well for you in the in the uh, Middle East. Hope everything's good. Uh, let, give me a shout. Let me know what's going on these days. Great to have you on the stream. So thanks for joining. So yeah, so that's the origin of Labor Day in the world, the May 1st and also the U.S. Very interesting holiday. And it's been kind of reduced to this barbecue 
beers and burgers here in the U.S. with a little bit of shopping thrown in good, for good measure. But I think that's changing. I mean, I think the dialogue and the discourse in the country is changing, uh, or at least it's being we're being forced to, to reckon with changes. I think a lot of people don't want things to change. They're happy with their life. They'd like a little bit more freedom. They want the COVID nonsense to be over with. They're looking forward to getting the elections over with so we can kind of get back to life um, as usual. But uh, so I think for some folks, it's like, I don't want to deal with these questions right now. I don't want to deal with the unrest and 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 the uh, destruction because I just want to live my life. I want to work hard, take care of my family. Let's talk a little bit, though, about um, the concept of work. You know, in the last live stream which was two weeks ago. Saba says, or sorry, Unity says Saba. Yeah, that, like I'm just remembering correctly that this, that was Saba. So he, uh, for those of you listening, Saba changed his handle to Unity ECS. What does the ECS stand for? What's Unity ECS stand for? I'd be curious to know. Not that you have to tell us. You can just ignore the question if you don't want it public, but I'm just curious. Um, so last time on the stream, you know, there's a bit of an overlap here. And I really wasn't planning it this way. But last time, the last podcast, I talked about the power of action, how important action is um, when you want to see your life transform, that nothing changes, nothing happens unless we act. And, and action is really just the imposition of our will on the world around us. And that, that imposition of our will happens through our physical bodies, that there is no action without some physical manifestation. Even if you're doing digital work, you're still doing keystrokes. You're still moving a mouse around. You're not like plugged into the matrix with your eyes closed, unconscious, and just living in your mind. You're physically interacting with your surroundings. And that when we understand the power of of action and how it changes the world around us and then reformulates the opportunities that we have that, that you start to understand why it's so important to be thoughtful about your actions. So we kind of talked about that and, and that dovetails very nicely into the concept of labor and work. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, Bogan, uh, Bogdan Starr says, not all labor is productive, only when put towards advancing productivity. That's a good point. So not all labor is productive only when put towards advancing productivity. So I think you're, I think you're right. And, and if I'm understanding, look, we're kind of looking at like a quick comment in a live stream. So I'm going to just interpret some things. Feel free to jump in there if you think I'm mis misrepresenting you. But yeah, you have to be smart in the way that you're applying the labor. And this is where capital markets come into play. You know, if it was just up to labor, what labor would do with its time, if there wasn't this kind of working back and forth between the free market giving information back saying, hey, uh, I'm willing to pay money for this thing, but I'm not willing to pay money for that thing. Then that kind of gives labor information to say, this is where we should put our energy if, if we want to get paid for our labor. And often labor is not directly connected to the market. The other thing is, you know, we talk about labor, uh, you tend to think of the worker. This is the factory worker, the construction worker, somebody that's on a line, you know, doing something, whether it's with a wrench, tightening a screw or a drill gun or, you know, whatever, whatever you're physically doing. There, there are people at that level. And this is one of the, this is one of the fallacies. This is one of the flaws in, in Marx's thinking. You know, Marx was very big on labor and, and the proletariat, you know, and they have to fight against, you've got the labor who's creating all this value. It's all the labor making all the value. Then you've got these kind of vampires on the higher level, you know, these guys that are just taking advantage of the poor labor. But if it wasn't for the labor, 
you know, nothing would get made. And, and, and I, I don't want you to think that I'm saying solely that labor is responsible for everything. I'm just saying you can't have what you have without labor. But I think what, I think what Marx gets wrong, and I don't know if this is willful. I don't know if this is just ideological that it, he's got a blind spot. You have to have managerial class. You have to have executive leadership class. You have to have these different levels and layers of people to come together. Because if it's up to the laborer, the laborer doesn't have enough information. There's a couple issues. One is the laborer doesn't have enough information to always know what the market wants. You need people at other levels to be able to do research, to dig into things, to figure out where should we put our resources, where should we put our time, where should we put our our labor expertise and so on, so that we can make things that we know the market wants. I think that's the first issue. The first issue is that labor doesn't always have a good perspective. If you ask somebody who is a laborer, and by the way, I'm not I'm not saying there's a class of people that are stuck as a laborer. You could start out your career as a laborer and end up as a, as an executive, as an entrepreneur, as um, a, a capitalist. I mean, you know, a venture capitalist with all kinds of wealth. I mean, I I think this is one of the great things about a lot of Western societies that there's this this ability to move uh, into these different in and out of these different roles, and often you will see people based on their age make this transition. So, and I'm, I want to get back to my point about the, the two things that that are lacking in Marx's ideas, but but often when you see the data, you know, you look at um, Pinkety or some of these guys that are, you know, trying to criticize the capital system, and there's a lot to criticize, a lot of legitimate criti- criticism, but they'll bring data to the oh look at the data, the data shows, the data shows oh there's wealth inequity and these people aren't making enough. What that data isn't showing is you might be measuring some people early on in their career. When I was early on in my career, I did not make very much money. My household would have been borderline poverty. It was my wife and I and a little baby. We were poverty line. Like we were fine. We were paying our bills, but by numbers, we were barely getting by and we didn't have a lot. You know, we had a little used car from college that I had. A little two-door, four-speed Nissan Sentra with a couple windows that didn't close properly in the back. Um, We lived in an apartment. You know, my wife had to clip coupons and be very frugal to make sure that we had the money to pay for diapers and groceries. And, you know, like sometimes I was late on a bill. uh, And, you know, you get a $35, $40 bill that felt like a big deal. You know, I get a I get a thirty forty dollar bill now. I don't think twice about it. I mean, but 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 the point I'm trying to make is, if you measured me as a data point thirty years ago, the picture you would have had is this poor person living just just below or just on the poverty line. Now go forward thirty years, and you measure me now, and you're going to see a completely different thing. And so sometimes what the data is showing is a, is it is an incorrect picture because we see this big inequity, but we're not tracking people throughout their careers. We're not seeing the movement of, yeah, I started out kind of as a laborer and I ended up in the professional class or the entrepreneurial class or supervisory or managerial class. So, so I want to back up. So the two things I have with Marx, you know, one is it, he assumes that the laborer knows the market and the laborer knows where the laborer should put his or her efforts in a way that is valuable. Because the thing is, you can say, I want to sit and make, um, you know, stuffed unicorns 
and sell them on the market because that's what I love and I love to sew. So I'm going to stuff and embroider unicorns and sell them. But the problem is if nobody wants to buy them, you've put all your labor into something that is not marketable. It just has no market value. It's not productive. That's, that's um, to, to Bogdan Starr's point, that's not productive labor. So these other classes these, can provide that perspective because they have the tools. The second thing that, that Marx, you know, and Marx makes this argument, but it's the tools to production. It's like, how do you do what you do? So in the world we live in today, the average laborer doesn't have access to factories and equipment and tool and die machines. The average laborer doesn't have an extra two, three, four thousand square feet of factory space in their backyard. You know, they put up this beautiful big shop with beautiful lights. They've got CNC machines and so on. Now, there are people that have done that, but you don't usually start out there. You might over time develop your own entrepreneurial backyard business. You can make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars turning parts and doing all kinds of labor stuff in your backyard. That's fantastic. But, but labor doesn't have access to the resources. Now, the argument that Marx makes is, well, we should you know, overthrow capitalism, overthrow the government, and make sure that, that the laborer has access to the means of production. But how realistic is that? How, you know, the, and at the end of the day, the laborer doesn't really get access you're just now working with a government. So instead of working with someone that is in your community, an entrepreneur that owns that factory, who's tied to you somehow, is like he needs to treat you well because he wants to look good in his community. He grew up down the street. You guys went to the same high school. Your kids go to the same school. He's, he's got skin in the game. So he wants to make sure that he's treating his labor fairly. Mostly, the guys that I run into, that's their attitude. Now the government, you got this big impersonal government now controls all the means to, to labor. And, um, and, and the government doesn't care. We're just numbers. I'm a social security number. The government doesn't care about Mike Gaston. Why would he? But the guy down the street that owns the factory that I work at, he, he cares to a degree. Yeah, he doesn't go to bed at night saying, I hope Mike's okay. But he knows me by name. He knows my family. He knew my father. He knows my sister, my brother, my children, so on. We're connected somehow. We might go to the same church or be part of the same uh, club. Maybe we both served in the military together. I mean, we're connected on a certain level. And so he's got an incentive to make sure that I'm whole. And I have an incentive to make sure that he's whole. As soon as you make it uh, depersonalized in the government, now that the people the government controls the means of production and, and, and they will let you know what factory to work in. They'll provide the work, et cetera. Well, now you can forget it. Like they don't care about you. And so that's kind of the fallacy of Marx's argument. I say fallacy. I'm, I'm using that maybe a little liberally, but um, that's the flaw, in my opinion, in some of Marx's thinking. There is no perfect system. I mean, this is, this is the thing. There is no perfect system because human beings are not perfect. And that's, that's the thing that no one seems to want to talk about right now. We're so busy at, you know, we're going to erase uh, racism. We're going to erase income inequality. We're going to erase sex inequality. We're going to erase all, we're just going to make these things go away. But what no one wants to talk about is the only way that you can erase these things is to have perfect people or have somebody in charge that's perfect. And they're just, it just doesn't exist. There are no people that are, that are free of, in the, in the Christian or Jewish or even Muslim, there's no one that's free of sin. There's no sinless person. And if you just want to talk in material, scientific, atheistic terms, there's just there's no human being that is perfect, that, that doesn't have issues, that doesn't have chemical imbalances, that doesn't have bad habits, that doesn't have um, uh, biological and physiological um, 
discrepancies and shortcomings and so on. They're just, that, those people don't exist. So how do you erase all these things that are really based on the imperfection of humankind? So you're just really trading one bad master for another. I'd much rather have a system of natural checks and balances where I'm working for the, a person that's tied to my community somehow. Now, you can make an argument against the kind of the, where capitalism has gone with these huge companies that are huge, publicly traded. They've become impersonal. They've become almost governments and countries unto themselves. They don't know the names of their workers. They are not tied to the workers and so on. And, I, and, and I'm willing to have that discussion. I, I think that's a, a fascinating discussion. But, when it, but, but I think privately owned business, privately owned business in a free market, phenomenal check and balance. Phenomenal. Because if, if that owner, male or female, and those workers, male or female, if that owner doesn't treat people well, well, word gets around and the market sorts that owner out. After a while, nobody wants to work for that jerk. And if there's a woman down the street with, a, with a, offering a better opportunity, she's got a business, the guy I'm working for over here treats me like an animal, he doesn't pay me well, he works me around the clock. Uh, he doesn't respect me, but this woman down the street, she's got a business and she's, she's, you know, tough. She's a shrewd businesswoman. She, she expects the best, but on the other hand, she's fair and she's generous. I'm in. And that's how the market works. And now this guy down the street who's treating everybody like crap, he's out of, he's out of luck. Word gets around. That's the beauty of the free market. But when the government takes over, when, when labor, you know, the means of production, the factories, the capital and so on is controlled by the government, where do you go? Because now it's law. It's law. You have to do this. You've lost your liberty. You, you don't have, your labor is not portable. You can't, it's, not, it's not like you can pick it up and move it somewhere else and use it better. It can't be used productively, like uh, Bogdan Starr was saying. So, yeah, thanks for, thanks for making that comment. Not all labor is productive, only when put towards advancing productivity. And I think the free market is one of the best System Not perfect, not perfect, but you're not going to find a perfect system. I think the free market is one of the best systems because it allows human beings to apply their own labor in the ways that they think are best. They can do it collectively. I don't mean that they're going to socialize and collectivize and unionize. I just mean you can get a group of people together, a company, a group of people saying, let's work together. Let's figure this out. The marketing people can do the research, the finance people can do their thing, the, the production people can do their thing, but they come together to, for, for an, a common goal, to win, to, be thr to thrive, to create value, to solve problems, generate wealth, and make everybody's life better. That's fantastic. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. You get a little tear in my eye. Not really, but it is pretty fantastic. Let's catch, let's catch up on a couple uh, comments here. Uh, Bogdan Starr says, perfect, you finished my thought. And uh, Unity ECS is just a new tech in digital game design. Just new tech in digital game design. Uh, Turkey Brands. Turkey Brands has finally caught a stream. I would add risk is a big portion to labor valuations. Boy, that's a fantastic point. And Turkey Brands, thank you for saying that. Thanks for joining, first of all. Glad to have you around. And by the way, forgive me, everybody. Let me back up. I'm reading so fast. It is not Turkey Brands. <laughs> what a dummy I am. It's turnkey Brands, turnkey brands. Forgive me <laughs> for I have sinned. Turnkey brands. Um, I know he's laughing. Turnkey just said turnkey, he or she. But, but let me get back to the comment that turnkey brands made, which is phenomenal, which is uh, finally caught a stream, stream. That's phenomenal. But I would add that risk is a big portion to labor valuations. And that's, that's 
I agree with that 100%. The, the laborer comes in and says, I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to give you eight hours of my day, and uh, I, I expect to be paid for that. But there's no real risk. Like if the labor, if the person in the job, the laborer in the job, and, and let's use labor a little broader. I don't just mean some blue collar worker. You could be an office laborer. You could be someone working in office. You could be someone with a college degree or whatever. You're, but you're coming in. You're not taking any risk. The company's saying, I'm going to pay you $15 an hour or $30 an hour. Here's your benefits package. Uh, if you're in the office, you're going to make $40,000 a year, $80,000 a year, whatever that. But you're getting a set package. And what you're doing is you're trading your time for money. There's no risk to you. The only risk is the lost time that you have. You could have, the risk is that you might choose the wrong employer. You're getting paid $15 an hour to employer A. And the risk is that maybe you could be getting $18 an hour at employer B. And so you've got to figure that out. But even doing that, you're not going to lose your shirt. You're not going to become destitute. You might lose some potential earnings, but then you've got, you've gotten, you go to work, you do your thing, you go home at night, you get on the internet and you see if there's a better job out there. There's really no risk. Now, the, where the risk lies is that you really don't have control over your future. Now, none of us really do. Even entrepreneurs don't have control over their future. I can't dictate through the force of will what the future will hold for me. I can't dictate that. The only thing that I can do as an entrepreneur is I can see farther out. The employee can't always see farther out. What I mean by that is the employee the employee can't necessarily see the profit and loss statement. They don't know what the company's cash flow is. They don't know uh, what the company's current cash situation is. They don't know the expenses. They don't know the revenue. Often that stuff is, is opaque, meaning the employee can't see it. So you're coming in as an employee every day trusting that the guys in charge, the guys and gals in charge, know what the heck they're doing and that they're not going to crash the, the, the car in the process or, or, or sink the ship. Now, hard times hit, you might, hit, you might see the news, you might go, ah, things are sounding pretty bad, I don't know what's going on at the company, but you still really don't know. So all of a sudden, one day, you come in, they sit you down, and they go, hey, Mike, hate to do this, love you, you're, one of, you're a great guy, hell of a guy, but we got to let you go today, I'm so sorry, we've hit some hard times, we're going through layoffs. And you're like, oh, but I, I, just, I just bought a house, and my, my kid's going to college, and like... So you're making all these plans based on that set salary and that risk-free life that you have. The only risk is really that maybe you could make more money somewhere else. And the second thing is you might get let go at any time because you really can't see what's going on as much as people in the ownership or leadership role can. So when you're an entrepreneur, the control you have really is you can see a little further out. You know, okay, Things are looking tough, and if I don't get things turned around in three months, six months, I'm in deep trouble. I know how much money I have. I know how much money's coming in. I know what my expenses are. You can control, hey, I'm going to cut back on my expenses. You can control a little bit of your destiny, but you can't control the world you're responding to. Whereas the employee, they're a little bit blind. They're like, hey, I'm not flying this airplane. I'm sitting in one of the seats. I'm just hoping the guy flying it knows what the heck he's doing. So that's a bit of a risk there. Um, and when you look at the labor, get to get back to turnkey uh, brands comment, you know, labor doesn't really have a lot of skin in the game. They're giving you time and they're walking away. But when you're an owner, you've got so much more skin in the game. Like you've risked your money, maybe your life savings to get your company going. You've invest, invested in equipment, office space. You're the one paying all these salaries. You know, you live in the U.S. I'm guessing every state in the union. I'm in New York, but I know in New York, like, it's illegal not to pay people. If somebody worked a week for you, 
and you go, I'm sorry, I can't pay you. I don't have the money to pay you. you. You're in deep trouble. Like you have to fire that person before you run out of money because the state, they'll, they'll lock you up and throw away the key. You, it's illegal. You just can't not pay somebody because labor has a strong uh, hand here in New York, which, which should, that's fine. Someone works for you. They're not taking on the risk. You are. It's not their job to make sure that there's payroll. It's your job. So this is why we say risk and reward. You come in and your job is to turn a screw every day or your job is to fill out Excel spreadsheets and you get paid your fair salary. What do you want? You, you feel like you should get a million dollars for showing up for work? You, sh- you, you know, you're just, oh, I, I, you know, without me, this company would go nowhere. Well, the question is, how easy are you to replace? If you're a screw turner, how easy is it to find other screw turners? If, if you're the only screw turner in town, then you can name your price, especially if screw turning is critical to the operation. But if you're unskilled and uh, you say, well, without me, they couldn't, they couldn't run this. Fa- this factory would just shut down without me. BS. There's about 1,000 people waiting in line behind you. And um, so, so supply and demand, obviously, skill set and risk. The more you risk, the more reward you should get. And I know owners who are right now, it's a risky time to be an owner. They've got real estate. I've got a number of owners that I work with have real estate investments. Uh, you know, they, they've they've got factories and and businesses with multiple employees, and they've got a lot on the line right now. And they may have built up. You know, this is one of the things that people don't understand about building wealth. People get jealous of owners. They go, "Oh, they're making all this money. They're taking all this money out of the business. Meanwhile, I'm just working away. I don't get paid enough." One thing people don't realize, and I had to learn this as an owner. I felt guilty taking money out of the business sometimes. And I had to realize that as the owner, often you have to, during the hard times, you have to have the financial depth to weather the hard times. Well, how do you get financial depth? How do you get financial depth? Well, you have to take money out of the business and you have to be responsible with it. You have to pack it away. You have to store it. You have to invest it wisely and and conservatively so that when you hit hard times, you have the financial wherewithal to get the company through the hard times. Sometimes you have to put money back in. Sometimes you have to go without pay. And so if you're feeling bad about taking money out, now here, there's a difference between being a pig and being wise. There are owners that just take money out and they just blow it all. Those people are idiots. They're pigs. They're just taking it out. They're consuming it. They're drinking it. They're gambling it. They're living larger than life. And then when the hard time hits, they've got no depth and, and they and their employees go down the toilet because the owner was irresponsible. But you can also be irresponsible that when your company's doing well, you go, well, I don't want to take it out. I'm going to give everybody bonuses. I want to make it fair, make sure everybody makes a lot of money. That's fine. It's not bad. But if you're not pulling out more money for yourself and packing that money away and storing it in ways that you can come back when times are tough, because times do get tough, then you have not done your job as an owner. You have to have financial depth. Otherwise, why are you in this game? So... Uh, yeah, just a few, just a few comments there. Fantastic. Let's go through some more comments here. Unity ECS kind of bringing some console power to mobile devices. He's talking about his uh, startup, I think. And it's my Ford Mondeo 1990. You are talking about. You're talking about the the poor build quality. Um, let's see. Zoltan here says people get corrupted on every level, even the guy down the street. Now, that's fine, and that goes back to my point, Zoltan, about about human nature. I I agree with you there. But what I will say is the checks and balances. I think there is more of an intrinsic check and balance with the guy down the street or the gale down the street 
than there is with somebody who is disconnected from me and my community. So if you and I uh, have to see each other on a regular basis, we have to interact with each other in the real world together, then I am more incentivized to treat you well, to not screw you over, to do right by you. And you're more incentivized to do the same thing. It's when we're disconnected from each other that those things are pulled out. And so, yes, anybody can be corrupted. But I think when the guy down the street becomes corrupted, everybody in the neighborhood knows it. And everybody in the neighborhood, you know, they get their fingers burned. They avoid that guy after a while. That guy can't do business after a while because he's corrupted. Or the kind of business he does, it's like, ugh, nobody wants to deal with them. And, you know, so, so I think that there's more of an intrinsic check and balance. You're never going to have a perfect system because there are no perfect people. But I would argue that um, I would argue that the person down the street, if they're part of your community on one level or another, and when I say community, it could just be your town. You have to know them personally. But there, there are checks and balances because that's what happens when human beings interact with each other. Uh, we, we are incentivized to be good to each other as opposed to just knock each other over the head or kill each other for what we want. There's a reason that, that the tribes worked. There's a reason that groups of people and communities work because we realized I get better. I do better off when I transcend the law of the jungle, the, 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 um, the survival of the fittest. If it's always, if, if the survival of the fittest continues on in society, well, it becomes a society where it's just the strong dominating the weak. And, and we know that's not the way it works. Often the weak rise to high levels because they start to figure out ways to navigate, to negotiate and to get what they want. I can do this for you. I can do this. You do that for me. They form alliances. Long and short of it is we do better when we help each other versus uh, brute strength. It just doesn't work. Um, if that were the case, you know, where would women be in a society where men are physically, biologically and uh, bigger and also because of testosterone, uh, more muscle mass and more aggressive? And women in Western society do pretty darn well. They don't. I mean, look, there are some problems in our societies right now, but for the most part, women have enjoyed many decades, if not 100 years or more of, of relative freedom, of safety, of not being possessed by other people and passed around like a like a like a, a farm animal that you just trade. I mean, women have been at the table. They're not as physically big as men, but there's something about the way that we've ordered our society. Well, it's partially checks and balances anyway. And the fact that, hey, women are just fine people. Why would you want to not be good to a woman? Anyway, all right, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Unity ECS is best stream ever. Well, thank you, Unity. I appreciate that. And, um, Turnkey brand says gobble gobble. <laughs> I know I feel bad for that. Uh, I guess it's it's a it's a happy accident. Just good for a laugh. But uh, apologize for that. Unity Unity ECS uh, says asks about stoicism. Um, yeah, you know uh, what's his name? Ryan Holiday's big on stoicism. Um, I know that's kind of making a, a comeback. And I think there's some good elements to stoicism. I'm not a I'm not a, a straight on stoic. Um, but, but there is something about stoicism. There's even something about the ascetic lifestyle that I think is attractive, especially in a very consumeristic kind of um, opulent, corrupt uh, culture that we live in now um, that, I, that I find attractive. So Uni ECS says, I once heard about stoicism talking about getting rid of life constraints. Now, see, that I'm not familiar with. That, that sounds more Epicurean to me, where you just enjoy all physical pleasures, uh, Manichaeism, I think, or Epicureanism. I, 
I have to go back to my philosophers here, but um, I think of stoicism as, as more being willing to let go of the material things in life, to, to be more stoic, to be not as invested in this life. But I could be wrong. I'd have to look that up. Turnkey Brands, 100% agree. Well, thank you for that. Um, and then Zoltan says, corrupt guy plus local corrupt cop will treat you, quote, well. Corrupt guy plus local corrupt cop will treat you well. Wink. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what... The, uh, you can elaborate on that. I, I won't respond. Just, I'm not sure what point you're trying to make. Are you saying essentially that if um, the numbers out... Uh, if you're outnumbered by corruption, your hands are tied? And, th and that may be the case. I'm not sure what you're trying to say. And I'm speaking from an American experience. You're speaking, I think, from an Eastern European uh, experience. You know, we've got we've to bring our context to play here. I, I, I don't want to make these broad statements that this is how the universe works. I'm just saying I do think in a free society with free markets that there are better intrinsic checks and balances. And, yeah, corruption is a problem, uh, but that, that's probably due to some degree uh, of human liberty being handed over to, to institutions that it shouldn't be handed over to. But, you know, we can get deeper into that if you want to. By the way, Zoltan, you're, uh, you're on me today. I don't mind it at all, but you're, you're holding my feet to the fire, which is fine. I think that's healthy, but, uh, but it's just kind of funny. <laughs> Unity ECS, those texts. Tech explanations was response to your question asking what Uni ECS stands for. That's what I thought. I thought you were, I thought you were responding to that. Thank you. And then lastly, Zoltan says large group, aka state, guarantees rights, peace, and prosperity. Kicks bad cop. Yeah, fair enough. That I agree with that. And I'm not, I'm not a anarchist. I'm not a straight on libertarian anarchist or anarcho capitalist. It's like you know, no rules, no laws. I, I don't believe in that. And. Um, but I do believe that you want a state, quote unquote, rooted in a in a in a in a set of commonalities. I think when you get into more of an imperial state, in America is more of an imperial state. I think um, you know the uh, I think the European Union's kind of a, a bit imperial. When you get these states that are more founded on an imperialistic, um, you know hegemony or whatever that's kind of overseeing everything. I, I, the state now is de detached from the commonalities of the people that it's governing. And I think that becomes a problem. And um, really good book, if you guys want to check it out, is, uh, and I, I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, but a really good book, uh, Haram, Haram um, Izzoni, uh, is that right? Yoram Hazoni. It's Yoram Hazoni. And it is called The Virtue of Nationalism, The Virtue of Nationalism. Fantastic book and fantastic take. You know, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit idealistic in the sense that he's making the case for uh, nationalism. I'm not sure how you get the world back to what he's arguing for, but I think it's an important book. He's asking and answering some important questions, and I think it's an important conversation. He's not anti-state. I'm not anti-state. But I want a state that's aligned with my values. I want a state that's aligned with my culture. I want a state that that um, understands and respects where where I and my neighbors come from, as opposed to a state that's saying I will impose upon you what what I think we think is best for you. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges that America has. We really don't have shared values, shared culture. We have a shared constitution. And I think as America has embraced multiculturalism through the decades, 
uh, we used to say we're a melting pot that you would come here and kind of contribute, but you would become part of. And we kind of shifted to more of a multiculturalist perspective, and we're saying no, we've everybody can bring their own culture and have it here. Well, what you then end up with is um, a country that that does not have shared values, and then you're at war with each other because you 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 find yourself at odds with your neighbor, and and then you've got this imposition of progressivism that says. We'll let you know what's right and what's wrong. We're not going to have pluralism. We're not going to just let you live your way. You mind your own business. It, it bothers us that you're wrong. We need you to align so that we can build a utopia anyway. Don't get me started. <laughs> I'm saying don't get me started. We're an hour, almost an hour in. I think I'm already started. I started myself. So, um, yeah. Turnkey Brand says, to be fair, anarchy is no rulers. No, not no rules. Fair enough. So then I guess the question is, if there are no rulers in anarchy, uh, who enforces the rules? And the, and the scary thing is turnkey brands, you know, people, we, we like, like in America, we're brought up, oh, it's a democracy, democracy. Uh, if we, if we're, and we're doing it, and you did the same thing, I think, with anarchy, you, you kind of go to the Greek and you go, okay, this means anarchy means no rulers, but democracy is demos, the, the mob rules. And if you, have, if you have the mob, meaning the majority, it doesn't always have to be a, a mob with pitchforks and, and burning torches at your door, but you have the majority of a society just deciding something. Uh, and imposing their will on the minority. Well, what if, what if, what if, like the minority has no recourse? There's no way for them to say, "What about my way of life? What about my beliefs?" You're forcing me to live a way that goes against who I am on an intrinsic level, who, what, what I believe, what I choose to do. So, in a pluralistic nation, there's supposed to be room for people to do their own thing. If you have anarchy with no rulers. Who imposes the rules? Does the mob impose the rules? How are those rules decided upon? How are they agreed upon? How are they enforced? Um, it's, I mean, and I understand we're talking idealistic here. That there are more pragmatic implementations of these concepts, but it, but it is um, interesting to me. Now, Turnkey Brands is saying, hey, I, you know, code, uh, see Bitcoin governance. And I think there's some interesting explorations there, but I think you'd agree with me. We're very far away from that. And, and the other thing that's troubling to me, when you set up a system that's based on, when it's based on, on knowledge that a very small percent of the population has, meaning not everybody can code, not everybody can understand how to build, to manage, to get behind the scenes, to get under the hood, as it were, with something like um, like Bitcoin or or um, blockchain technology, uh, app development, you know, cloud distributed software, and so on. I mean, that that's pretty arcane information. There's a small segment of the population that knows how to do those things, and even you go, well, you need a programmer. Even amongst programmers, there's a small set that maybe knows and understands blockchain technology. The problem I have is when you're going to manage and, and kind of rule, if you will, the population using tools that a very small set of people understand, you have this situation for a lot of human misery because you have a small, small segment of the population that can take advantage and will take advantage of the many. So I'm, by the way, I want to make sure I'm clear here. I'm not shooting your ideas down. I'm just more thinking out loud that, hey, 
all these things are challenging. I mean, they're fascinating. I mean, the blockchain technology is fascinating, and I think it provides a lot of promise. Cryptos, I mean, there's just some fascinating things. So I'm positive on these things. But I'm not one of these guys that goes, oh, technology will save us. Oh, this is the answer. I just feel like there's a lot to, to figure out. You really want a system that is transparent. You want a system that anybody can understand. So one of the great things about um, you know, representative government, you can, you can vote some farmer from Nebraska. You live in Nebraska, you vote some farmer uh, to, go to, the, to, to go to Congress. She hops in her pickup truck and drives to Washington, D.C. I mean, this is kind of hokey. It doesn't really happen this way anymore. But anybody can govern. Anybody can manage. You don't have to have arcane knowledge to be able to, to make decisions on, on behalf of your uh, constituency. So anyway, that's, um, that's, that's just me kind of rambling. George says, the devil sits as so often in the detail. He certainly does. That pesky devil He's always in those details. And I, I'm a big picture person. I don't want the details. Those are for the little people. I want to talk big concepts. That's what the currency, it's about ideas. <laughs> don't, don't ask me to talk about implementation. Oh, implementation's so boring. It's really not. But I'm laughing because those of you that, that know me a little bit know that I, I love concepts. I love ideas. I love problem solving. I don't like implementation so much. Now, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at that. I've gotten better at laboring around those things and disciplining myself. But I, I like to talk about the ideas. Uh, you know, there's nothing better than having a drink and a, a couple good friends and just hashing some good ideas around. Um, but yeah, let's see here. So the turnkey branch says, my point was more towards finding a ruling authority instead of depending on a flawed individual that may be corrupt. I think it's a good point. And, and, and I think you were saying this, uh, you said, I'm a conversationalist, no offense at all. Yeah, I wasn't trying to shoot the idea down. Probably doing the same thing. I'm just kind of jumping in and engaging the idea a little bit. So George is saying, uh, Mike 2020 coming again. I don't know. I think I missed the window for 2020 between Kanye, Trump, Biden, Harris, uh, I don't even know who the libertarian, who they're running. It's not, is it Gary Johnson again this year? Uh, I think I missed my, I think I missed my window. We'll have to go 2024. Although the other option, uh, and, and I got to be careful if I, you know, because you can get arrested for this kind of stuff in Australia, I guess, saying the wrong thing. But um, the other option is just an overthrow. I mean, you know, <laughs> I could just have my troops uh, march on the Capitol and, and be installed as uh, God, God emperor. Uh, God Emperor Dune or whatever, um, <laughs> which is which is a little bit more my style. I don't want it to go through. Elections are exhausting. They're expensive. You gotta you gotta kiss babies and shake hands and suck up to people. I don't want to do all that. That that's below me. And and that, and that's a you know it's a compromise. I, I want to keep my ideals pure and holy. So I'm gonna do more of the dictator route because elections are for chumps. Uh, I I just want to roll some heavy metal and install myself in a coronation of sorts. <laughs> you know, hey, I, I've heard podcasters can go places. Maybe this is, uh, this is the, the place where it starts. You know, you get, uh, you guys are on the ground floor. George, I, I remember we said you're going to be Ministry of Hospitality, I believe. I think we had that already figured out. And um, Zoltan, you'll have to tell me what, you, what, you, what, you, what role you want. Uh, maybe... <laughs> maybe... Maybe you're going to be the opposition. I don't know. 
George says, okay, I guess we need to continue this on the dark web. <laughs> That's right. Everybody fire up your Tor browser or whatever. I try to check out, um, it's not the dark web, or maybe it is the dark web. So there's the intellectual dark web, which, you know, supposedly uh, was started by... Um, Oh, guys like Jordan Peterson, not started, but like they were included in this. Uh, I love listening to this guy, The Portal. Who does The Portal? Weinstein, the Weinstein brothers and so on. That's the dark web. But what's the other thing where Silk Road and some of those were? Um, I mean, that is also the dark web. But I remember my son back when he was in uh, engineering school telling me about this and explained the Onion or the Tor browser. And I tried to, not that I was going to go to um, any of these illegal sites, I just curious to check it out, but I, I couldn't, I mean, I was able to make it work, but I, it just, there wasn't anything there for me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that was mischievous and fun. And I think that's by design. I think you have to kind of know where you're going. So I, I just decided to stick to the, uh, to the place where the dad genes are safe. Um, so labor, <laughs> we've been talking about labor. Uh, yeah, Zoltan says, I'm critic, a.k.a. turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> That's great. Don't be so hard on yourself, man. I really, I honestly, you know, I have no problem pushing back. Um, on the other hand, I really don't mind people. Actually, I appreciate people that, that critique things. And, and what I interpret from you, Zoltan, is that you're critiquing them from a, from a good heart. You're just saying, hey, not so fast. What about this? Or you should try harder. Or that's not good enough. I don't mind that. Like some of that stuff is good. There's there's some people that come into critique. They're just like, they've judged you before they even know you. They just want to rip you apart, and move on to the next conversation. And I just find that tiring. Uh, but, but, you know, people that hold your feet to the fire. One of the things I found that was tough when I ran my business and not tough because anybody else was was failing me. It's just the dynamics of things. Like when you sign the checks and you're the boss, even if you're an idiot, which at times I was stupid, I did stupid things. It's really hard for your employee to say, hey, Mike, you're really missing it on this one. I mean, it's, that's asking too much of somebody that depends on their livelihood. Even if you're a nice, you go, hey, I'm a nice guy. You know, uh, people can tell me anything. And, and sometimes people would, I'm not saying that my employees are cowards, they weren't, they were phenomenal people, but it's too much for them to sit you down and go, hey, you dominate meetings, you've got a big mouth, you think all your jokes are funny, all your ideas are great, you're really hurting the company by doing that. And it, who's going to say that to you? Who's going to tell you when you've got a blind spot? Who's going to tell you they really question how you're doing your job? Why aren't you, know, why aren't you out uh, doing this instead of that? Or in that client meeting, you were a little pushy and, and it, it's not good. It's hard for an employee to tell you that. So as an owner, it's often tough to get good feedback, to get honest feedback. Your employees won't, I mean, some employees will, but my employees never lied to me. They, they never misled me. They just probably at times didn't, if they saw something wrong, were not comfortable or confident coming to me and saying, here's what I think. So, so I say that Zoltan to say, that I think getting criticism and critique is important if someone wants to grow, if someone wants to become better, they're ha they have to have friends. They have to have people in their, you know, their community that are willing to challenge them. Now, no one wants to hang around with somebody that just punches you in the gut no matter what you do. Like, you know, you do something you're really proud of and that person's like, yeah, it could have been better. It's like, hey, how about just saying nice job? I just, you know, like, can I just enjoy this for a moment? Uh, but, but I think, you know, I, I don't view you as that kind of person. Sometimes you, you, you're very... Um, positive about things. I appreciate that. But I, but it makes, I guess, the criticism that much more important because it's like, oh, 
this guy's a friend. He wants to make sure that I'm doing my best work and he's going to ask some tough questions. I like that. I like that. George says, Eric Weinstein does the portal. That's right. I, I, I enjoy that. Uh, when I'm doing some drives, some long trips, I'll listen to the portal. I have a hard time listening to podcasts when I'm working just because I can't hear someone talking and focus on my client work at the same time. But um, yeah, Weinstein does a good job. And I like him because he's, he's a liberal. Like he's not a right wing anything. He's just, he's just an honest thinker that sees the world and tries to be intellectually honest and intelligent and thoughtful about it and communicate it in ways that are important. And, and he's a Gen Xer like me. I just, I just really appreciate his perspective on things. I think he does a phenomenal job. He's some great guests too. Bogdan Starr says, in a way, power is an illusion. It requires everyone to buy into it. Nobody inherently has power unless we give them. Uh, world is a stage. You guys remember that song by Rush? Uh, I think he's quoting, uh, uh, Getty Lee is quoting, and maybe Neil Peart wrote the lyrics. Um, Shakespeare, but all the world to me is a stage, and we are merely players, actors, and portrayers, each cast in these unlikely roles ill-equipped to act. I'm sure that's a quote or a quasi-quote from Shakespeare, but uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic thought. So... What is the power of labor? If we don't have power in this world, if we've kind of covered the various aspects of labor and power and so on, I do want to at least add one thought to this conversation. I think I'd be remiss if I allowed myself just to kind of go off on tangents and not say how important that labor is, how important that work is. And I don't mean the labor movement. I'm talking about our work. You know, when I was younger, I used to go through this kind of, oh, oh work is a curse. I can't wait. Even when I owned a business, there was a certain point, really tough times during the financial crisis where I was like, I just can't wait to not work anymore. Work is such a curse. You know, it's like, this is part of the fallen world. You know, if you look at the Christian story, the world fell and now we're miserable. We're working because we didn't have to work before. Then I realized, you know, that's not true necessarily. When God created the world, if you look at the Christian in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the Jewish story of creation, God gave Adam and Eve work to do. Now you can look at this as a literal story of two real people that were given work to do. You could look this, at this as a kind of a parable or, or just a story that kind of helps humans understand. But he said, hey, uh, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, cultivate it. Like get out there and work, farm, grow, bring things into order, make them nicer, build homes, build properties and gardens and so on. Like he wanted us to work the earth. And I think this is instructive. Work is a blessing. It allows us to transform the world around us. Through our work, we can transform the world in small and great ways. That's why I opened up talking about all the things that labor has, has accomplished. Now, labor didn't do that all by itself. The labor force didn't do all that by itself. But when you think of labor in the sense, not of political groups or classes, but more as just our work, our labor, small l. Like, I labored today. I worked today. Our work is important. It gives us a chance to change the world around us a little bit. It gives us a chance to transform ourselves. It's like working out, you know, we, we work out, working out. The more you exercise, the more your body begins to show it. You develop stamina, stan, stamina, blah, stamina and strength. You begin to get leaner, you, you know, you're, you get more oxygen, uh, your blood flows better, your heart's stronger. You can do all kinds of things. You look better, you feel better. That doesn't happen all at once. And I think there's a parallel in when we work our jobs, the more we, and I don't mean to say that you should be a workaholic, that working all the time is healthy. That's, you know, you need to be in balance. Now, just like going to the gym all the time is not healthy. But I think that work provides us an opportunity to grow, to change, 
to transform and in the process create wealth. If that work, as Turnkey says, is oriented on productive things, if that labor is focused on things that are productive, we can create and generate wealth for ourselves, for our loved ones, our family, our community. We can we can really do some amazing things. And this is why I think Labor Day on one level is great. It's great to recognize labor. But on another level, it, it misses the point. The trade unions and all this miss the point. Their focus is so transactional. The focus is we're going to fight for another nickel. We're going to fight for another dollar an hour. We're going to fight for fewer hours. It's always this transactional fight back and forth. I'm going to, I'm pitted against you. It's the, it's the Marxist dialectic, the Hegelian dialectic. It's like one side against the other side. And I understand that's not going to go away. That's a, that's, um, that's just part of human nature, I guess. But it, but on another level, it's like, if you want to do tit for tat, if you want to fight for every nickel, if you want to sit and do this transactional approach to your work and say, well, I'm going to join the union and fight these guys because I want to do, I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to do this and I want to get paid that and I want this holiday off. That's just so transactional. And, and the sad thing about that, it is, it's like you're down on the ground grubbing around for pennies. When if you just kind of look up, the trees are full of dollars and I feel like this kind of union, and I get it, like some people, that's their job and they need a union to protect them, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not trying to make this an anti-union diatribe today. I'm just trying to get at this deeper understanding of work. Work should not be transactional. If you're doing work that is transactional in nature, meaning you're just going in with the mindset of I'm trading an hour of my time for, for $15 or $20 or whatever the number is, it's a trade of time for money, you're getting ripped off. And why do I say that? I'm not saying that because you're being taken advantage of. You're allowing yourself to be robbed. You, whoever you are watching or listening to this, you bring so much more to the table. You are so much more valuable. But if you allow yourself to be pulled into a transactional mindset, a transactional game, you're going to be a loser. You just, you just don't come out ahead. You want to focus on your work and think about what is it that I'm transforming? What am I changing to be better? What am I producing? How am I changing the world? And if you're looking at your work situation, you're not happy. You're saying, well, I, don't, I feel like my work is transactional. I don't know what to do about that. Get on a path to get out of that transactional work. Get into more transformational work. I know it's a meme. Learn to code. And we'll go back to Turnkey's comments, but learn to code. Teach yourself. It's free. You can go online and learn to code. You can start doing transformational work. You can make things that solve real problems from a laptop in your bedroom. You can transform the world from your bedroom. I know it sounds kind of like some ridiculous commercial, like it's pie in the sky, but it's true. Now, I'm not saying that coding is the opportunity for everybody. Maybe you want to learn to make things with wood, hammers, hammer and nails. Maybe you want to learn to uh, be a speaker. You can get on YouTube and develop content. I mean, fill in all the blanks. There's so many opportunities to us today. I know that not every opportunity is available immediately. I know some of these opportunities take many years, decades of hard work, toil, pain, and suffering to get to. But the point of this is we want to be on a trajectory. We want to be on a trajectory out of transactional work and a transactional mindset where you're trading time for money, where we're then instead employing our labor, our expertise, our skill, our work, our activities for wealth creation. I don't have the time to get into all that. And I should create some content around that. But I think that's the key. That's the opportunity is to, to put behind 
the labor union mentality, the transactional mentality that is celebrated today on Labor Day weekend and trade that for an expertise and wealth building mindset and approach. Now I'm going to wrap up the podcast. I'm going to stay online for a while. and We're going to do some more chit chat in the, in the comments. And so I'm going to wrap up the podcast and just say thank you to everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I'm grateful for everyone that listens both live and after the fact. Grateful for this phenomenal, international, intelligent, thoughtful, kick-ass community. So thank you guys. I want you to know I love you all. Uh, you can catch this podcast anywhere fine podcasts are provided. Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio. Uh, just search for The Currency. You can probably look for my name too, Mike Gaston. Subscribe. Give me a like, throw a comment. It just helps the algorithm know that this is something that should serve up to other people. And it helps me a lot to get the show out there and make it successful. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can do that too. Just uh, go to my website. It's MikeGaston.com. That's M-I-K-E. G-A-S-T-I-N.com and get in touch with me because uh, I would love to communicate with you. If I can help you in any way, it would be my pleasure. Guys, I love you all and I will catch you in the next episode.